Thank you, Kevin, for shepherding our hearts. Before we get started this morning, I want to make a few plugs. Book Club is starting. Um, if you started that first chapter and the introduction is a little bit of a grind, and so uh, you can blame your pastor. I take full responsibility for that. But I want to encourage you to stick with the race. And I think as you go through the book within the context of book club, I think you will be blessed and you will be encouraged. So don't get put off or discouraged. This idea of heart and habits and where they both fit in into the Christian life is necessary for our marriages, our homes, our parenting, just about every aspect of the Christian life. So hang in there with that. The second thing is this um, Sunday, this Wednesday, excuse me, um, we're doing our summer Lagos series once a month, unlike what we did during the uh, spring and fall semester. Once a month, we'll get together here at the church and we'll go through topics that you have asked uh, to hear what God's Word has to say about these things. And so, uh, Lord willing, this Wednesday, I'll be starting and we'll be going through what Scripture has to say about work, career, and dating, and we'll package them all together. Um, a lot of this will come from Genesis 2 through 4, and also uh, the book of Daniel, and then we'll also maybe touch on Ephesians as well, and uh, we'll spend a half an hour going through what God's Word has to say about those things, and then hopefully you can bring some questions too, and we can use that time for a time of prayer and fellowship and encouragement. Well, Psalm 80, verse 3, Asaph says, and Asaph is probably writing in the exile, and uh, his life has been separated by the sins of his people, not personally God's judgment against him, but because of that community living in exile. And in Psalm 80, verse 3, Asaph says, Restore us, O God, let your face shine, that we may be saved. Restore us, O God. And let your face shine that we may be saved. And brothers and sisters, in light of everything that's been happening these past few weeks, this is not new, it didn't happen overnight, but that's certainly my prayer for our church, our nation, our families, that at the end of the day, the Lord would restore us as a people, as a church, as a nation. And there's only one way the Lord does that. He does it by shining his face upon us, and he does it as he shines his face upon us, he does it through his son and through his gospel. And that's what we celebrate this morning. And this morning, we're coming to Matthew chapter 5. And we draw near to what is often referred by many as the Mount Everest of sermons. And it's often referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And it's timely that we've reached here because for centuries, believers and unbelievers alike have looked to these God-breathed words in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. They've looked to these words, and this is unbelievers and believers alike. They've looked to these words for peace and for wisdom and for power, especially during dark times, and like the times that we are in. And if ever there was a need for peace and for wisdom and for power for people living in dark times, it's our time. And it's these past few weeks. And one of the reasons believers and unbelievers alike have turned to these words is that in these words they have recognized, whether they are Christians or not, they recognize that there is a light in these words that does not exist in the world and certainly doesn't exist in the leaders of this world. 
Sadly, though, what's happened, and, you know, if you read the classics, you'll see countless different people writing about the Sermon on the Mount. Frequently, what happens within the Christian community and the non-Christian community is they're unable to see or admit that the light that they are looking at when they come to the Sermon on the Mount is actually the light of Christ and the light of His kingdom. And so typically what happens is we have really mangled this sermon by sort of taking it for things that are helpful to us, and we've discarded this idea of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. And so for this morning, our big truth this morning, really what I want to do for you this morning is to give you an overview of the Sermon on the Mount. I want to give you three keys, and they're my three points as we go through, of how to rightly appreciate, understand, and apply the Sermon on the Mount. Big picture. And then, Lord willing, I'm sad to say, we will probably resume the Sermon on the Mount in the fall. Okay, we'll take a break. I will likely be going through different selected topics this summer. But it's really important for you to see the big picture of what this is about. Otherwise, we're not using these words in the way Christ wanted you to have them, to be a gift to you. And so this morning, if I could have my first PowerPoint, our our big truth as we look at this is, is that the light of the Sermon on the Mount is really the light of Christ and His kingdom. It's the light of Christ's kingdom. This is what Jesus is talking about. He's not just giving you tools to a better life. He's talking about what the light of His kingdom really looks like. And of course, the light of His kingdom looks like Him because He is the light of His kingdom. Christ is the light. And this is what the Sermon on the Mount is really all about. Um, If you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to go back a little bit. I know we've been through this many times. It should be familiar to you, but my intent here is I want you to see the context of the Sermon on the Mount, not just to take it separately from the rest of Matthew's gospel. There's a connection between Matthew 4 and Matthew 5 and Matthew 6 and Matthew 7. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they, will, they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. These are the words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Allegedly, it was through these God-breathed words that Mahatma Gandhi came to appreciate Jesus as a great teacher of humanity. And of course, it's interesting that he came to this conclusion at a time when most of the academic Christian world had discarded the Sermon on the Mount. And long before the Black Lives Matter movement, Gandhi's teaching and his practice, his teaching and practice of the Sermon on the Mount, influenced the social gospel movement, Martin Luther King, the civil rights movement. And the Sermon on the Mount really became a landmark as a reference of how to practically address and resist social evil and social injustice in our world. Now in our times, brothers and sisters, and in our circles, we have witnessed a similar trend in many ways, in the biblical conflict resolution movement, which is known as peacemaker. Think of one of the distinctives of our church, which you sign when you come in. And we see a similar pattern where portions of the Sermon on the Mount are used as a blueprint for conflict resolution, also known as peacemaking. And it's used in the church and among Christians who look to the Sermon on the Mount and the principles of the Sermon on the Mount as far as how to resolve conflict in their homes, their marriages, their families, and also their churches. Now, I raise this because it's, it's worth noting how Jesus uses the term peacemaker in the Sermon on the Mount. And if you look at, at closely and you read, and we'll see in days ahead, you're going to see that he uses it very differently than many Christians do. The peacemaking he's not talking about is not, first and foremost, primarily resolution on a horizontal level. It is both vertical and Horizontal, And as he goes through the kingdom, the kingdom, he's talking primarily about our eternal relationship with God and his kingdom. And I raise this because it's in this way that both liberals and liberal Christians, as well as conservative evangelicals on the other side, both sides, not just one, have really taken the Sermon on the Mount and kind of reduced it 
to a series of wise proverbs and wise principles for good living. And without doubt, there are good principles and there is a wealth of wisdom in dealing with evil in our lives and resolving conflicts and in living a good life, quote-unquote. But as we walk through this today and as we consider the Sermon on the Mount within the context of Matthew's Gospel, I think you will see that this is not what Jesus intended for this sermon that he gave. And we do him a disservice to reduce it and to leave it at that because through this sermon, his desire is that you would see his beauty for who he is according to God's word. And not only his beauty for who he is according to God's word, but what he has done for his disciples in the new life and the new kingdom, he has given them to live, not pie in the sky, not when he comes back in his millennial kingdom, but beginning now. As we listen carefully to these words of Jesus, very clearly Jesus is not speaking as a great humanitarian teacher, and nor is he speaking as a Christian conflict mediator. And just consider his response in Luke 12, 13, where a man comes to him and says, I've got in a conflict with my brother. He won't give me my portion of the inheritance. And you go and read Luke 12 and 13 and see how Jesus handles that. It's a little bit different, okay? He more or less tells him, this is not my issue, and this isn't why I have come to sort out your conflicts over your family squabbles. There's a greater point here. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives, as we read through it, and what we just read, when you listen to how he's speaking, he's giving decrees as the eternal king of God's word. And brothers and sisters, that's where we have to start when we come to the Sermon on the Mount. We have to hear these words recognizing who's speaking them. Okay, and that brings us to our first point for this morning, our first key for understanding big picture, the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is the Word of Christ, the eternal King of God's Word. The Sermon on the Mount is the Word of Christ, the eternal King of God's Word. If I was to tell you how to decorate your home, you would be foolish to take my advice. And Julie will make that clear in the catastrophes that have happened in the Chin household. I am no authority on how to decorate a home. And similarly, if I was to give advice to the praise team on how they should sing or what notes or what keys or what instruments, I don't think it would be wise for them or they would need to think carefully about what they're hearing. Now, we know these in all different matters of our life. At the end of the day, Rightly hearing and understanding what someone is saying must take into account the source. Who's speaking to you? Whose words are these? Right? Who is speaking into my life? How do I weigh them? It's not just what we want to hear. And think shepherding, brothers and sisters. There's any number of peers who will tell you what you want to hear. There's any number of people who will pat you on the shoulder and say, you're right, they're wrong. But we really have to weigh and consider who it is that's speaking to us. And we also have to think of this, brothers and sisters, as we think about our media, our news, our entertainment, Straight across the board, we really have to consider how often do we stop and think of all the things that we take in and really weigh the hearts of the people 
who are putting this on our plate and who are speaking into our hearts and lives. I think one of the reasons it's been brought up many times over of the struggles to really hear what God is saying to us in this time and this generation, many have made the point in the time of the Puritans or in times past in the history of the Christian church, people were trained to distinguish the value of who was speaking to them. Whereas what's happened in our world with technology is it's all flattened. Many voices, and the voices, and when we come to Scripture, we're hearing Jesus as one of many voices speaking into our lives, and sadly, he's on par with ESPN. Right? Do I lie? Okay, and then we wonder when those are the narratives and those are the people who are speaking into our lives and they're speaking to our children and our families, when we come and we say, we can't understand what the word of the Lord is saying, or we can't understand what they're saying. It's because we've been listening as authority in our lives a completely different narrative. Right? It, it's, it's like Asians who I met from Hong Kong who tried to play baseball with me, and the only frame of reference they had was cricket, and they thought it was great. There's a ball, you swing it, and it was absolute chaos because they were trying to play baseball as if they were playing cricket. Well, when we come to God's word, we have to listen and make those distinctions and understand. And we have to ask ourselves, how often do we hear and read scripture as the words of the eternal king of God's word? Well, that's Christ's call for us. That's his call when he calls you to be a disciple. He's calling you. He says, no, I'm not one of many voices in your life. I am the voice in your life. I am the king of God's eternal word. And the proof of how we receive his word is really borne out in our lives. It's not secret. You just look at our lives and say, okay, is this a life that reflects that the greatest voice in his life and in her life and in his marriage or her marriage is not what their friends think or all the Christian books that they've read. Is it at the end of the day, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? And we've been through this before where that definition of king, an old, outdated definition, especially in America, where we got rid of our king a long time ago and replaced him with we the people. A king is one who has the power, the authority, and the right, the power, the authority, and the right to rule over a specific kingdom. And this is what Jesus is saying to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. I have the power, I have the authority, and I have the right to rule over the kingdom of God's word, which over time is going to be the kingdom that conquers and runs and sovereignly rules everything both in heaven and in earth. And as you walk through Matthew's gospel, this is the repeated testimony of Matthew. Throughout his gospel, according to God's word, this is who Jesus is, the eternal king of God's word, the son of God. And this is why Matthew's gospel begins with the words, the book of the genealogy of who? Jesus, Yahweh says, the Lord says, Christ or Christos, which in Greek means king. It's Greek for the anointed one, the Messiah, the promised king of God's word. Well, Matthew starts right from the beginning and says, I want you to know who Jesus is. This is who he is. He is the Christ. He is the promised one. And as we walk through the Sermon on the Mount, this is everything that precedes the Sermon on the Mount and everything that follows the Sermon on the Mount. So if you look at Matthew 1 through 4, and I believe I, I tried to put this up in the PowerPoint, Matthew 1 through 4 is all about the coming of this king. His birth, 
the virgin birth, his fleeing Herod, his going to Nazareth and then to and, and, uh, Egypt, all of these different steps, the wise men coming, it's all about the coming of the king who is bringing God's kingdom. And as you go from Matthew 8 through 28, what follows the Sermon on the Mount is the work of the king. It's the work of his ministry, which leads him all the way to the cross to die for sinners like you and I, and his resurrection from the grave, and then sending his disciples out to share the good news. What's that good news? All authority, where? in heaven and earth has been given to me, the power of the kingdom. And the power of the kingdom isn't the Vatican and it isn't the Southern Baptist Convention. The power of the kingdom is in Christ's hands. And it's something that we lose sight of. And what is it that connects Matthew 1 through 4, the coming of the king, to Matthew 8 through 28, the work of the king? It's Matthew 5 through 7, the words of the king. And just like Genesis, in the beginning, where the coming of God's kingdom on earth, his creation, and the work that he does on behalf of those he's created, what is it that holds it all together, brothers and sisters? It is the power, and it is the authority, and it is the rule of God's word. That's what holds it all together. And by extension, we need to think, you know, as you think, what is it that holds your life together? What is it that holds your marriage together? What is it that holds your parenting together? What is it that holds our relationships together? Well, hopefully, if you're a child of God, it is the power and the authority and the rule of Christ as king, his power and authority that he gives to us with his words. And as you walk through the Sermon on the Mount, this is what he's talking about. He's showing the power and authority of his word to change the lives of those he rules. And as you walk through and you see as he describes his kingdom and he shows his kingship, his rule, it says, this is the way it's going to be. And it is completely different from the way the world runs their kingdoms. As you walk through Matthew's gospel, many scholars have identified five major sermons or teachings of Jesus. And many have wondered whether perhaps these correspond to the five books of Moses. But it's these discourses, beginning with the Sermon on the Mount, that holds together the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. And these are the words that are, are given to be heard, and they're given to be received as nothing less than the words of the eternal King of God's word, the one who rules. And as you listen to these words of Matthew 5 through 7, they're not spoken as advice or comfort. Is there advice and comfort in these words for God's children? Absolutely. Should we run to them for comfort and advice? Absolutely. But let's be mindful. Jesus is not giving these words. Just look at how he speaks them. He's pronouncing decrees and commands. And so what you see, he's pronouncing the highest authority and power and rule over his kingdom. He's explaining to us, this is the way things are, this is the way things are going to be forever, no discussion, no negotiation, and this is what you must do. And as you come to the very end, Matthew 7, he gives this eternal decree. If you hear my words and you do them, your house is going to stand. If you hear these words and you ignore them, you're like the foolish man who builds his house upon the sand. And so you see in Matthew 5 through 7, it begins with the pronouncing of blessings, 
Think Deuteronomy, right? And it ends with curse. His condemnation of what God does not affirm or approve or welcome into his kingdom. So in many ways, this is very similar in a very similar framework to what we've walked through in Deuteronomy. And Jesus, I believe, very much intends that we would receive it in that way. And as we come to the end, he makes this point, look, I put before you, just like Deuteronomy, life and death. There is life in me and in my kingdom, and there is death outside my kingdom. He puts that right before the people and gives them a choice with this. And it closes in Matthew 7, 28. It says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had what? Authority, and not as their scribes. So he didn't teach them as a Bible expert, didn't teach them as a seminary professor, didn't teach them as, quote-unquote, a pastor of a famous church. He taught them as one who had authority. He's teaching them as king, and even the crowds recognize this. And so, brothers and sisters, really as we come to God's word, Many times we come and say, it's hard for me to read my scripture. I, I just don't connect with it. I'm struggling. It just, it seems tasteless in my mouth. And I think the prayer that we need to come to the Lord with is, Lord, open our eyes that we can see you and who it is who's speaking to me through these words. Enable me to behold the beauty and the goodness of the one who is saying these things to me. Lord, restore us and shine your face upon us the face of Christ the King. And this brings us to our, our second key for understanding the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is the word of Christ the eternal King, but the Sermon on the Mount is the word of Christ about His kingdom. It's the word of Christ about His kingdom. He is not talking about a civil rights protest movement. He is not talking about getting rid of colonialism in India or in the United States of America, he is not even talking about how we regulate our disputes in the local church. Throughout Matthew's gospel, this sermon, there's one word that is repeated over and over and over again. What is it? It's the word kingdom. And kingdom refers to a reign, a rule, and a realm of a king. A reign, a rule, and a realm of a king. And that includes the king's subjects. A king's subjects are part of his realm. And Jesus uses this word eight times in this sermon. And why does he do that? Because, brothers and sisters, this is what his sermon's about. It's about his kingdom. These are Christ's words about his kingdom, beginning with the blessings of his kingdom rule. And that's what we read. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. And he closes with the judgments and curses that we just spoke about. Not everyone, Matthew 7, 21, who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter what? The kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So you see it's bookended from beginning. It begins with the kingdom. It ends with the kingdom. Jesus is telling us about his kingdom. And it looks remarkably different, as I said, from the Southern Baptist Convention and also the Vatican. 
And so as we walk through this sermon, brothers and sisters, you know, it's been given this name, the Sermon on the Mount. That's how it's been held sort of classically. But really a more accurate description is this is the Sermon of the Kingdom. In America, when a new president is elected and he takes office, he makes an inaugural address. And where does he do it from? Capitol Hill. And he gets up there and he swears in and he puts his hand on a Bible and then he makes his speech. And as he makes that speech, what is he doing? He's letting you know that there's a new El Jefe in town, right? And he's letting you know that there's a new president in town and he is not like the old president. And he makes a speech, more often than not, to separate himself from the presidents of the past and to let you know who he is, what he's come to do, and what his vision for this nation is. And similarly, in the ancient Near East, Roman emperors and newly conquering kings would do the same thing. If they had conquered a new territory, they would come into that territory or send their apostle or their herald, and they would make an official address to their newly conquered kingdom or the subjects of their kingdom. And they would let them know, hey, I'm your king now. That old guy who was there before, he's not your king anymore. And this is how I do things. And this is what I plan to do. And you have a choice. You can be part of this kingdom and do things my way and live. Or you can stick with the old king and go the way of the old king who probably was paraded around Rome with his eyes plucked out in chains. Now, those are fallen men, okay? And those are our distorted counterfeits of the king of heaven. When you look at rule in the world, rule is every one of us trying to be God and run our own kingdoms and do a bad version of trying to be God. And we do it badly. We do it badly. From Vladimir Putin to Elvis, we do it badly. But as we come to God's word, we see from the beginning, God is king. That's where it is in Genesis chapter 1. And as Jesus has come as king, this is what he does with his sermon. He's spelling out for his disciples who their new king is. He's spelling out for them what sets apart his kingdom and his subjects from all the other kingdoms of the world. And certainly it raises that question, brothers and sisters, are we disciples? Are we part of the kingdom of Christ? What is it that sets our lives apart? What is it that makes us disciples? Well, Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus spells it out for them. And throughout this, Jesus refers to his kingdom as the kingdom of what? The kingdom of heaven. And why does Jesus do this? Well, he does it from the beginning. He's showing them that his reign, his rule, his power, his authority, even those who are his subjects, even those who have come into the kingdom, Everything about his kingdom is from above. It's from God, and it's from the word of God. That's why he says to Pilate, when Pilate asks him those questions in John 19, I think, where Pilate's asking him questions, and he lets him know, Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, my disciples, would, my followers would be fighting. It's different on every single level because it begins with God. It does not begin with the power and the authority and the rule and the reign and the words of fallen men. And I raise this, brothers and sisters, because we lose track of this, don't we? 
I mean, how often through the history of the church do we try and mimic what the world has in its kingdoms, its buildings? You just have to travel to Europe and travel to Rome, and you can just see very, very clearly how this is very much an imitation of the kingdom of men and the empires of men. But, brothers and sisters, we do the same in the evangelical church, too. And Jesus is coming right from the beginning in love to his disciples, and he says, no, from top to bottom, this is a different kingdom. And you are different kingdom citizens. You're part of something that is completely different from the world. This is my love for you. This is what I've done. This is the good news. I've actually brought you out of those kingdoms, which are ruled by death and darkness and ultimately lead to death and darkness. And that includes our education, our careers, and all of those other things. At the end, there's only one thing that's waiting. I've taken you out of these things so that you don't have to live that way anymore. And so that you can be part of and have a life in a completely new kingdom. And of course, brothers and sisters, this extends to just about every aspect of our life. And as Jesus walks through this sermon, he goes out of his way to show that his kingdom is the opposite of and it is opposed to. It is the opposite of and it is opposed to the kingdoms of this world. The kingdoms of this world where the self-confident, the self-serving, and the self-satisfied are blessed as opposed to the poor in spirit, the meek, and those who are persecuted for Christ. You look at that list of blessings, it's a list of losers in the world. That's when people read through it, they come to the Sermon on the Mount. How many times have I had people say, well, Pastor Mark, if, if I take this literally, you're telling me to be a doormat. Brother, it ain't me. It's Jesus. And we have to learn that losers in this world are winners in Christ's world, and the winners in Christ's kingdom are losers in this world. Always has been, always will be, and that's going to go all the way into the kingdom. Why is this the case? Why is it so different? It's because this is Christ's kingdom. And it's because his kingdom is the kingdom of heaven, and it is because Jesus himself is the king of heaven, and this kingdom is about him, brothers and sisters. It's not about the whistles and bells of this world. My old professor, Dr. Vlock, and you'll see the grid up on the screen, and this is taken from his book, He Will Reign Forever. He makes the point that the primary theme of Scripture is the king and kingdom of God's word. And I do agree with him in many ways. As you go through, you can see the entirety of Scripture of God's kingdom plan is being poured out. There's a story that's happening. It's not a list of 66 books to give you advice on your problems. There's a plan that's happening through this. And it begins with the creation from God's kingdom. God's kingdom creates the world and the universe. That's Genesis 1 and 2. And then we go to Genesis 3, and we see the fall from God's kingdom. Sin, wanting a kingdom of our own. And so we see the first man and woman who are created to be servant kings in God's kingdom. They fall from that kingdom because their desire is to be their own boss, their own kings, and to have a kingdom of their own apart from God's word. And then as you follow it through from Genesis 3 all the way to the end of the Old Testament to Malachi, these are, you can put it together, and this is not 
inspired word, okay? It's just a way that helps you understand and, and see the big picture. But as you walk through Genesis 3 to Malachi, these are the promises of God's kingdom. Deuteronomy, what we've walked through, the blessings and the curses, God's promise to David, the prophets, judgment coming, all of these are the promises of God's kingdom. And then as we come to the gospels and the epistles, we come to the restoration of God's kingdom. Excuse me, the redemption by God's kingdom. Where Christ comes to redeem people and bring them out of the kingdom of the world and to bring them back into the kingdom of heaven. How? By dying on the cross for you and I. There's only one way, redemption. He must pay the price for our sin. That's what redemption means. You pay the price. So he pays the price to sin and death on our behalf. And that's what the gospel is all about. It's about the redemption by God's kingdom. And we fail to see that many times. We say, well, Jesus saves me. No, it's everything about Jesus. And that includes his kingdom. And the way he redeems you is he brings you out of the rulership of sin and darkness and all the things of this world, our career, our entertainment, all of those different things, our self-esteem. He brings us out of that. He redeems us out of that. He dies to remove that rule in your life so that you can come and have a new life in his kingdom. And finally, when we get to the book of Revelation, that is the restoration of God's kingdom. And I raise this, brothers and sisters, because this is the good news of God's word. And this is the good news of the Sermon on the Mount. That Jesus is a different kind of king. He has power and authority and rule over sin and death. That's what we've been struggling with in this nation for the last few weeks. And he has fulfilled the promise of God's kingdom. How has he done that? By bringing the kingdom of heaven near to people like you and I. And that's what Matthew 4 is about. And how does Jesus bring the kingdom of heaven near to you and I? How does he bring a new rule in our lives? How does he challenge the kingdom of darkness in each one of our hearts? He does it through the teaching and preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. He does it through giving us a new life in him. And for those who, by faith, obey his commands, for those who, by faith, repent and follow him as king, What becomes their blessing and what becomes their joy is the blessing and joy of being brought into Christ's kingdom by faith. Not through merit, not through our works, not through the ways of the world, but by his love for you. Their joy and blessing is as Christ brings them into his kingdom through repentance and faith in him. Their joy and blessing is that they lose everything in this world their families, their fishing business. They lose everything this world has to offer. And that includes the rule of sin and death over their lives. And instead, what do they gain? They gain the life of Christ, where Christ is their king. And they gain the good news of his rule and his reign over a new life in him and over a new kingdom. And as you walk through the Proverbs, brothers and sisters, you'll see repeatedly that in the Proverbs, the statement's made that people celebrate when there is a righteous king, but lives are miserable when you have an evil king. And certainly we've lived this out 
in our nation, depending on who the ruler and who the president and who the leadership of the nation has been. The gift of a righteous and just and merciful and truthful and loving king is a gift that we don't deserve and that this world can't offer. And this brings us to our final point and our final key for this morning. The Sermon on the Mount is the word of Christ for his disciples. The Sermon on the Mount is the word of Christ for his disciples. It's his word. It's his word about his kingdom. But very specifically, this description of his kingdom is very specifically not for everybody. It's for his disciples. And this is something that I've said repeatedly. This is not for the civil rights movement. I've just narrowed my world to this big, right? But that's not what it was intended for. It wasn't intended to make America great. It wasn't intended to make America the city on the hill. What's made really clear as you walk through this, and this includes many of the ways in which evangelicals have handled this text, these are the God-breathed words that Christ gives very specifically to his disciples. And this is what he shows us in Matthew 4, 1 through 23. Matthew shows us that according to God's word, the bringing of his kingdom and the bringing of his salvation and his fulfillment of those prophecies to save God's people from their sins comes in the form of teaching and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and calling people to what? Repent. To turn from your sin, but to turn from your kingdoms of sin and instead turn to the king of light. And how does Jesus save his people from their sins? And how does he bring them into his kingdom and into a new life in his kingdom? Brothers and sisters, it begins with the power and the authority and the rule of his word. You can't have one without the other. You can't have Jesus without the power and authority and the rule of his word. And when you try to do that, you end up with a very, very different Jesus, which is what the church and what the world has done. We get the Jesus who we like, <clears throat> the Jesus who makes us feel better about ourselves, but it's not the Jesus who changes lives. The Jesus who changes lives changes lives not just with his word, brothers and sisters, with the power and the authority and the rule of his word that transforms lives. And Jesus comes in and he brings sinners into his kingdom by becoming their king. And this is ultimately, brothers and sisters, a path that he brings these disciples on because that's what a disciple is. Someone who's been brought into that life-saving, life-transforming relationship with Christ. Someone who has been brought into his kingdom. How? Through repentance and faith in him and through leaving everything behind. Anything that would hold them back from Christ. This is how Christ makes disciples. And we've gone through this over the past few weeks. And as we've said, it's a path following Christ that leads these disciples where? What we're going to celebrate in a few minutes. It leads them to the cross, Matthew 26. It leads them to the resurrection. And it leads them to the great commission of going into the world. And 
baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. That is the kingdom vision, and that is the kingdom deliverance, and it includes a cross with it, brothers and sisters. And Jesus makes it clear for disciples, this is the best news of all. Because this is what it means to be free from the power of sin in our lives. And this is what empowers us to be free to serve Christ and to enjoy fully his love and his goodness. It's Christ himself. It's that relationship with Jesus as king. He is the light of the Sermon on the Mount. And so as you come to the end of Matthew chapter 4, Jesus makes a distinction between two groups of people in his life. Have a look at verse 25. It says, And great crowds followed him. And then Matthew 5.1, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Now, who are the group of people who are listed right before it says, And he opened his mouth and taught them? the disciples. And when you go back, these are the guys who have answered his call, left their fishing boats, left their families, and they've heard the message to repent and follow Christ. That's, that's where he's going. But then there's all the crowds and the looky-loos and the people who say, there's something good going on. He's able to address evil in a way that the rest of the world can't. He's able to heal. He speaks with authority. Yes, the crowds can appreciate that there's something special about Jesus. It's not rocket science. I mean, you know, you look at Mahatma Gandhi, you look at Leo Tolstoy, you look at all of these different people. It's not rocket science to come here and say, there's something special and different. But brothers and sisters, that doesn't make you a disciple. And so as we come to these words, we realize, how do we rightly understand it? Well, these words are Christ's gift as king to his subject, his gift of love, the words that he has given very specifically for his disciples, those he has saved and brought into his kingdom, and those he is preparing for the cross. And for the disciples, it's going to be a bumpy journey along the way. They're not going to get it. They're not going to understand many of these things. But by faith in Christ, in his time and in his way, through his death and then later with his resurrection, the beauty of Christ the King, brothers and sisters, He doesn't abandon his disciples. He loves them until the end. He gives his life for them, and then he pursues them even after they stumble and fall. That's the king of the Sermon on the Mount. And so at the end, it begs the question, brothers and sisters, especially as we get ready for the Lord's table. Are you the crowds? And you follow because there's something good in Jesus. Or are you indeed a disciple? someone who Christ has saved and has brought you into his kingdom so that he can be the king of your life. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for the greatness of the kingdom and the king, which are so different from the kings and kingdoms of this world. Would you, O Lord, give us hearts to see the beauty and goodness of what sets apart your kingdom from our past lives and our past ways. 
and for all the whistles and bells that this world tries to offer, which are only counterfeit kingdoms. In your name we pray, amen.